Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Oh, yep, very, very special Sunday mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is the doctor, Dr. Nirvan Mahanti. How are you, buddy? I am awesome. Excellent. Fantastic. How are you, Captain? Hey, hey. I'm very good. Mate, I can't remember the acronym we were given last week, unfortunately. I've forgotten it already. So I'll have to look that one up. We, we were The mailbag edition was given some uh, acronym, if I can recall, very, very special Sunday. I can't remember. Whatever it was. We will just go with very special Sunday mailbag edition, the full version, because you know, it's that, it's that special, mate. You don't want to spoil it by making an acronym out of it, right? It just confuse people. We want people to know how special it is. Well, okay, that's, you know, I'm going to call it the special mailbag edition in which we're going to power through as many questions as we can. All right, that's, with, with that out of the way and with that, uh, uh, well, I've been told. Let's get on with it. Question from Blake, mate. Hi, Scott and Doc. I am wondering if you could discuss the growing industry of gaming and whether you see that industry as growing at the moment and compare the software platform companies or other companies that offer um, in-game purchases like Epic Game, Take-Two, Activision, Blizzard, etc. Cheers, Blake. Always love the pod. Thank you, Blake. Love the question, Doc. It's uh, Gaming is kind of, it's hard to, pinned down right now there's there's esports obviously which is a whole different thing there's pure gaming which is just the providers of literally the computer games or the apps that we play uh, i guess even that i mean the computer games that's online there's local there's apps themselves it's a big and, and dramatically growing industry um i don't know that we have do we have even any kind of reasonably kind of i guess aristocrat leisure kind of has a little bit of a social gaming kind of thing going on but i don't think we're any on the australian stock exchange other than that do we at least none of note Oh, in the, on the transfer. Well, there's a, the cup. There's at least one small okay. uh, gaming uh, game developer, right? W- which has uh, listed recently, I think, um, but not much otherwise. Aristocrat Leisure okay. is another one that you pointed out. Um, those are the two. I think you know. There's a, and I think a company called Plays right. that has listed, which is, it's just, I think, you know, uh, interesting. And and then Aristocrat Leisure. But yeah, most of the big ones. Okay, I'm learning as I'm going here. Good. Yeah, and the, most of the big ones are overseas. I guess a couple of things to think about. There are ga- game developers, which, yep. uh, and there the thing to think about is you need to be able to produce hit games, and then for hit games you need, need to be able yeah. to produce the iterations. Right. Then there are platforms. So like Epic Games is interesting in the sense Epic's I think is private, but Epic Games is interesting because it's a platform for producing games, right? So in in some ways it's like the the picks and shovels of gaming um that's another way to look at gaming then the final thing to think about when you think about gaming is to think about where else gaming technology can be applied so right. a lot of gaming has virtual reality augmented reality built into it and those are being built in but those things can be applied in other industrial contexts as well right mm-hmm. so any company that provides i guess the toolkits to do sort of ar vr uh, for gaming can apply it elsewhere. So that, that's, those are sort of some broad strokes of how one could think about gaming. Mm, I like that. It's um, it's it's a fascinating kind of industry. Uh, it, the, uh, I mean, Amazon's got Twitch. There's kind of this whole kind of story about it. Do you do you feel like it's an attractive area? Is it an area you're looking at in, in kind of detail for for investment ideas? Um, do, do you even do, I mean you know do you do thematic investing are you looking at looking for industries saying hey gaming should be big I'm going to look for that or are you just waiting for companies to kind of pop up and show good results and jumping on those how, how do you think about the industry as a, as a whole 
Yeah, so many of the big ones that are interesting are also, they're, they're not just gaming companies, right? So you could be in Microsoft yeah. and you could, you know, have something else with a part, you could get right. part Right, or the Xbox, gaming. exactly, yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? You could be Tencent is actually the world's largest gaming company, if you think about it, right? Tencent, yeah, the, yeah. The, the Chinese behemoth. And and it's really a tech company which does payments and, you know, has, a, I think, you know, so many other things, online, right. uh, online shopping, uh, cloud and so on, so on. so a lot of those that so I don't thematically look what I do find interesting is gaming platforms are interesting to me um, and because not just for the need because gaming games are becoming more and more popular but also because games as you just mentioned right about uh, esports mm. and things like that mm. and then wagering and all those things that have gaming components to it right and then application of those ideas more broadly so uh, uh, if there's a platform company that interests me because platforms are stickier they are not hit dependent somebody else can have a hit as long as the platform facilitates the hit then they're going to make money off it so that sort of thing interests me yeah. but yeah uh, like again broad strokes that's how i'm thinking I, about it yeah I, I like that idea and it's such a complex area right i think as you rightly say who are the biggest gaming players and then even if they are do you get enough of that gaming exposure is gaming itself even worth doing it it's you kind of you kind of tie yourself up in knots and then go back the other way trying to kind of put this together and pull it back apart do you, you know if gaming is going to be big do you want pure gaming maybe but if the winners aren't going to be the pure gaming companies then maybe you know it's the other way around again and, and you say Tencent and Microsoft may well be the big gaming winners um, even though they're not pure gaming companies it, the the hit based nature of something like this I've looked at Aristocrat Leisure here in Australia so many times and it, it looks expensive sometimes and cheap other times and I couldn't get away from the fact that and this is not gaming gaming in the way that Blake asked it but in, in pubs and clubs around Australia the, the queen of the Nile poker machine if you've ever been into a pub or club listeners you'll know that one I think I saw that first when I was maybe like maybe when I first started going to pubs when I was 18 I don't know it's been around forever at least it feels like it and it just reminds me or at least at least gives me the sense that to your point about these things being hit machines it is kind of hit or miss right like whoever came up with Queen of the Nile I don't know which company does it 20 years ago there I assume still getting plenty of money from that and people are still playing it I assume because it's still around um I'm sure there's been plenty that have been kind of invented in the meantime and have gone by the wayside because people don't like playing them. Uh, again, if we take that to game game games, <laughs> you know, literally video games, I guess the same kind of applies. Is is the move to subscription-type revenue, though, helping offset some of that? I mean, I, I've looked at these things and gone, maybe Aristocrat has the next big hit in pokies, maybe it doesn't. And like a movie studio, do I really want that? Probably not. Then again, you know, we know Disney as a movie studio has now got Disney+. Plus. We know that a lot of the online games, the, the what do they call them? Massive multiplayer online role-playing games, MM, whatever it is, um, are largely subscription businesses now anyway. D does that to some degree, I, I guess, I mean, it probably knocks the top off the upside, but does it also kind of, you know, fill in some of the downside risk? It does. Yeah, you're right. So a lot of these people have uh, subscription models now. Yeah. And, and that makes it uh, less lumpy. Um, right. Uh, again, but it doesn't remove the risk that you can't get growth. I mean, you can be sort of flattish, and people, mm -hmm. you know, ultimately cancel a game subscription if it's they're not entertained, they're not upgraded, they're not, you know, those are going to be upgraded versions. So, I mean, the stickiness is is people forget about the payments they made only for so long until it starts <laughs> biting them, right? So, uh, <laughs> so subscription payments is not like a panacea here yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for a minute. but, but I, I think it removes some of the risk, but I think growth really, that's why I like, I said platforms, like, you know, mm -hmm. th those are sort of the ones that are likely to see the growth, the epic games of the world, basically. Nice, thank you, mate. Hey, let's get a question from Jista. Jista says, Dear Captain and the esteemed Doc, 
I'm a little bit. Am I not esteemed? Is that what he's trying to say? I'm, I'm a little bit offended. Well, well never mind. You, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, he didn't put the the epithets for you. So I know. I'm, uh, a bit, I'm a little bit offended by that. Anyway, well, he says it has been a little while since my last pod question, but since then, I have become. An avid and very happy EO member. Extreme opportunities. Maybe that's why you're, you're esteemed these days. Myself and a mate discuss all things Motley Fool on our twice-weekly bike rides. He is a huge fan as an, and is an EO, SADI, and US Services member. Man, well, get a uh, to your mate, Jester. We often reflect how the weekly standard vanilla podcast and the extra special mint choc chip in a waffle cone mailbag edition his words, not mine, help keep us both on the straight and narrow with our investments. Well, that's pretty cool. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. This week, he says, we were discussing the astronomic rise of Pointera. Could you and the doc help us understand what has caused such an increase in valuation in such a short time? And perhaps as an investing lesson, explain in general terms why that why that would happen to one stock over another stock that you or the doc would have classed as a similar company. Keep up the good work, boys. Your listeners are very happy campers. Then he says in brackets, just maybe not in the bush, no showers sort of way. Thanks to both of you. And a hashtag for us, mate. Hashtag Scott V Doc TikTok dance off. I can <laughs> guarantee you, Gisa, that is not going to happen. Mostly because I would lose no matter who I'm dancing against. I don't know about your dancing uh, esteemed doc. I've never seen you dance, but I'm, I'm very, very sure I would come a distant second. So well, maybe, gonna, that's, maybe, maybe we're going to have a competition for who's going to come last. <laughs> no, exactly. Might be, might be a dead heat, you reckon. Hey, um, so mate, the point here, I know it's a company yes. you're familiar with. Yes. Um, what's behind the, the sudden and, and astronomic rise? And I, what I, I actually, you know what? I, I mean, I like that question from Jesha generally. What I love better, actually, is his second follow up, which is just why this one and not something else. And mm. I think that's a really, really cool question. Look, it's, it's probably not super important in the long term. If you're a long-term holder, any of those short-term movements will be washed out anyway. But it's a great question to ask to think about the rest of them and why this and not somewhere else. So firstly, mate, can you give us a quick, what is Pointera and why has the share price been on such a tear? Yeah, so Pointera is basically a 3D data um, platform. So you think of an image data for inside, outside that's stored and processed. You need a platform mm. for doing it. Um, this is used for buildings and, and things like that, design and so on and so forth. So you want to process the data stored somewhere, process it, apply mm. algorithms to it. That's what Pointera basically enables. So it's not a 3D capture, but it's a 3D data manipulation platform uh, for the lack of a you know, at very high level. Um, uh, high level. Now, okay, I'm going to disappoint with the answer here. I'm going to say what our... Uh, a, a friend of ours and a former colleague of ours used to say more buyers than sellers. <laughs> so, so, okay, to tease that out further, um, just to not keep Gista here um, hanging in the dark. So, small companies, this especially happens with small companies. Small companies have small number of shares outstanding. Uh, often, <laughs> often they tend to have also, a lot of small companies have insider holdings that are uh, either escrowed or they're just not trading because they don't want to sell. So when a small company gets noticed and has say, good results and has yeah. some famous people investing in it, it just builds interest. And that interest results in people wanting to buy the shares and there are not enough people willing to sell the shares, which can cause the share price to rise quite yeah. dramatically in the short term. Uh, and at some point, you know, then sellers might feel like, okay, it's a good time to sell, or those people who have been looking to sell, good time to sell, and that might actually again decrease the price. So, effectively, in the short term, there can be a fair bit of uh, price going up and down on on small caps. Uh, yeah, so the pointer has had some good results. 
point here, I would say, was mostly below the radar, under the radar, or whatever mm. you want to call it, mm. Uh, mm. hidden uh, until sort of, uh, you know, we discovered it and a few other people discovered it and uh, it got some important endorsement investments and now it's less undiscovered and that's been interesting. So that's sort of, I think, you know, again, a company is executing fine and as you've said, our thesis is not based on what's happening now and a thesis is based on a multi sort of year uh, horizon and if, yeah, if it keeps yeah. executing then you know this sort of will be a, it will look like noise but I think that's the short answer given that noise mate do you I guess do you think is, is it a case of kind of it becoming the hot slash popular stock and kind of people as you say it gets above the radar all of a sudden people rush to it is that what differentiates this maybe from some of the others that haven't had the same love is it pure randomness do you have a, a guess yes yeah, so, so so no, like it has had some love and you know so so typically the love comes because there's good results so good results catches attention of a bunch of interesting okay. investors which then brings other investors who are basically following interesting <laughs> investors and yeah, like right, right. yeah so like i mean and then this has happened in other cases i can't off the top of you know we've seen this instance like a big tin can had a big rush in the share price and it's sort of pulled back a lot since yeah, then okay. the comp- company has executed just fine Nothing has changed substantially the execution, except that some of that sentiment has sort of, you know, so this is really, mm-hmm. I think, sentiment, um, because, I mean, the short term, really, everything is mostly sentiment. Um, yeah. so, that's right. Uh, so that, that's that. Like, again, I, you know, I don't try, and I, uh, we don't try mm-hmm. to, to drive sort of what we do, buy, sell based on sentiment, because it's just ex- extremely hard, right? We yeah. wouldn't know the the pathway, you know, something becomes a five-bagger, the pathway for it to become a five-bagger could be any number of ways, right? Yeah, so. that's right. And it doesn't really, really matter, right? I mean, unless unless we're actually getting it abjectly wrong, it kind of doesn't matter whether it halves or doubles on the way. I mean, straight up and to the right would be lovely and a straight line in a hurry would be fantastic. <laughs> if we can get, you know, if, we, if, if Point Zero is a $55 stock in, in, in a week and a half, that's probably pretty good. Uh, but the reality is, you know, it, the, the journey almost doesn't matter. It can be stressful and it can be kind of challenging to stick with it. But it really doesn't matter to the extent that, and I know you're not the world's biggest Warren Buffett fan, mate, but, you know, Buffett, one of Buffett's quotes, I'll tell you how to be rich, close the doors. Um, you know, the idea of coming back in five years and just seeing how things are going. We're not saying people should ignore their portfolios, but it kind of doesn't matter, right? Like it's, if it gets there, it gets there. If it doesn't, it doesn't. How the, what the journey looks like, it doesn't matter so much at all, does it? Yeah, it, it does not. Like, I mean, it only matters if you, if you have this crystal ball and you can really sell at sort of those peaks, right? So if you think this is the peak and you knew this was the peak and you could, or the intermediate peak and you could sell here and then get back in at the, at the like the intermediate low and then get back, you know, and assuming the taxes don't, didn't matter to you and you knew exactly when the peaks and the bottoms, you know, the, the, uh, the, the valleys and, the, you know, the, the peaks mm-hmm. and the valleys were, then exactly, you could. Yeah. But yeah. like, you know, none of us know when the peaks and the valleys are, unfortunately. I wish yeah. I knew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it'll make our trading lives so much easier we'd, we'd be on the Bahamas by now mate we, if you haven't been doing this long enough if we could buy every peak and uh, sell every peak and buy every trough mate we would have retired many many years ago well the podcast would not have started <laughs> there is that <laughs> see so, so you, you're welcome fools the fact that Lock and I aren't richer is, is just for you we're, we're doing it for you let's put it that way <laughs> alright alright Let's, um, let's move to the next one, mate. We're on a roll here. One from Daniel. Hi, Scott. I'm a new listener of your Motley Fool podcast, and I've been hooked since. Thank you, Daniel. I have a question I want to ask. My company grants employees RSUs, or restricted stock units, and they've been performing extremely well in recent times, so much so 
I'm facing a significant tax bill this coming year. Well, I'm kind of sorry, but not sorry, <laughs> Daniel. That's a good result. Uh, anyway, says, my question is, one strategy I've seen to pay the tax is to sell off part of my vested shares to pay the tax bill. But I fear if I did that, I would regret it if the company continues to perform well. FOMO, he says. Is it wise to sell part of my vested RSU to pay the tax or should I just pay it in cash and ride the wave? I know you can't give specific advice, but I'd like your view on how you would dissect how you would go about making that decision. What other strategies should be considered? For example, selling the vested RSU and diversify or just to pay off a substantial part of the mortgage? So there you go. Good question. We kind of have something similar, Doc. We, we have occasionally been gifted shares or we've bought shares in the open market in The Motley Fool. Uh, I've certainly in that situation. I think you probably have been in the past. I don't need to talk about your personal circumstances necessarily, but we certainly can at least empathize with the question. Your thoughts on what Daniel might do or some of the pros and cons of his choices? Well, first of all, Daniel, you know you're in a fortunate position and you know so that's, that's a great position to be in, right, to have this sort of question. So congratulations on that. Um, uh, look, this is like I can't give it as his right point. We can't give any personal advice. A couple of different ways to think about it, right? So I think about this in a couple of different ways. You know your company and you probably have good insights of where the company is going because as, as a person working in the company, you have better view, visibility into what sort of the, mm. the pipeline looks like, maybe. Uh, and, and therefore, maybe you have a way of figuring out what the stock price should be. Again, remember the market will do its thing if it's a listed company. So, you know, you might think the stock price should be high, but it may not be high. So that's uh, that's another thing to consider. Um, I would say I would consider diversification in the mix. So if I work for a company and I have our restricted stock units, uh, I mean, working for a company is a type of investment. And and then having stock in it says another type of investment, right? So it's you know is it you have to think about how is it too many eggs in the same basket? Is the question I would ask. I'm not saying that you should sell uh, everything. All I'm saying is just is to think about you know what is the right amount to hold, uh, and um, you know what is the right amount. So you're asking all the right questions. You know how much should you diversify away? Um, I've held uh, a large chunk of uh, Motley Fool shares. Um, and I've sold in, or at times to pay off taxes. Uh, so, that, you know, the employee stock options, as they vest, you pay tax on them. So I've sold some to offset that tax. That sounds like a very legitimate strategy. Um, I've done that in the past. I've done also, you know, pay from my own savings, the tax component. I've done that as well. Uh, that also is a legitimate strategy. Uh, but I think I just encourage thinking about this from a diversification point of view. I like that. Um, I think for me, I've done. Yeah, same. I, I've so I've we 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 can't we can't sell easily our shares to pay the tax. You have got the capital gains tax bill to deal with, at least the motley fool. So in the past, I've always when I've got been granted those shares, they get granted to you. Um, I've always paid the tax in cash, and then had to. Um, sell subsequently if I wanted to then cover that tax bill which is a bit of a quirk of the way we work at The Fool um, I'm not sure whether yours are a US company or an Australian company maybe it doesn't matter um, uh, you know I think um, I think so it's something we could work you could work out on, on your cash needs and your, your business needs but I like Doc your point about the diversification thing I think if your entire work and your company are caught up in that look you know the Motley Fool's internal share price has been going up. I don't think I'm allowed to say too much more. <laughs> I'm not sure. I can't remember what the confidentiality rules are, Doc, but let's just say, you know, when I've sold shares in the past, I 
I, you know, I would have been better financially holding on to them. But part of the diversification thing is exactly that, is you know, having my job and my shares all in the same place. Um, I've wanted to be diversified generally. I, I love the Motley Fool. We're doing, you know, business is going well, shares are going up, as I said. So, you know, it would have been better for me to hold on, but it just felt like it was the more responsible decision was to diversify as a result. Um, uh, I think I would, I mean, we can't tell Daniel what to do. I think I would be inclined to consider diversification i would also consider the mortgage and we've talked a lot about that in the past doc that we you know financially there is no there's no good reason to pay off the mortgage financially given rates are you know fix it less than two percent if you can't earn more than two percent in shares then frankly you know pay the mortgage off because you, if, you, if, you, if you if you can't manage to get at least two percent a year on average over from now on uh, you're probably not cut out to be an investor so you know financially it's almost certain that paying off them the mortgage is a, is a lower return option option but I think you might have done it, Doc. You certainly have cash in the offset, you've said before. I've certainly got cash in the offset uh, for exactly the same reason. So I am choosing a lower return um, for, for very, very different reasons. And I think, you know, it, it, it's it's where, you know, a good financial planner, a good financial advisor really is worth their weight in gold because I'll tell you, hey, and we've said before, I've said this before, here's the mathematically superior solution. And here is some other options that frankly, because finance is part of life, not life itself, here's some other things you may want to think about. So that's kind of the that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I um, think- I think you've covered everything. All right. Sorry, I'm just trying to get through a few. We've got such a backlog, mate. We're trying to get through this as much as we can. One from John. I really enjoy listening to the Sunday mailbag while driving around. Thank you, mate. Now is the time for me to ask questions. I've come to a stage in my life where I can put a bit of money aside. I'm 55, no debt, as the house is in my wife's name, second marriage for both of us. I have super worth about uh, 200 grand, two managed funds. There's lots lots of detail here. Okay, um, I'm just I'm going to summarize this, mate. He said, I'm trying to work out the best option. Let's say I've got a few hundred bucks a week to put away. Do I top up what I've currently got? And he's talking about super or managed funds or an ETF uh, or all into one or the other. Another option is to open an account with a raise type of thing, which is one of those kind of automatic investment options. And when it builds up to a decent amount, shift the money around then. Not really keen to play the share market. Don't have the time or the knowledge. My aim is to retire early. Sorry for such a long-winded question. Oh, good. Can't wait to hear your advice on the Sunday mailbag. Full on regards, John. So, Doc, this is kind of a question of do I top up my super? Do I invest in managed funds or an ETF? And for a guy who really doesn't want to pick stocks, what should he do? Now, we can't tell John, of course, like Daniel, what he should do. But given, given again, this is kind of one of those financial advice questions, which is more than just which stocks to buy. Someone who says, look, I know I should invest. I want to invest. I want to retire early. I've got a couple hundred bucks a week. Where do I, what do I do with it? And for someone who doesn't want to pick stocks, what would you say? Well, like, I, I mean, ETFs are a, are a good alternative, right? So just some broad-based index. We've talked about them many times on this podcast. So I think that would do the job. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's, with the super versus non-super, I mean, super gives you tax advantages, but if you want to retire early, um, you know, and you don't have access to super, well, you can't feed off that money, right? So you need yeah, to think yeah. about that as well. Um, those are the two things I can think of. But again, this is, this is getting to such detail that, uh, and because yeah. it gets into life needs, it's very difficult to, <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. to you know, yeah. everybody's life needs are different, right? So your financial advisor, uh, financial planner is uh, a good one. It can really add value here. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I um, So John, look, you, you say you want to retire early. If that's the case, you want to retire before super would invest, it would be silly to invest in super because you'd be ready to retire before you can get your money out. Um, there are restrictions as to when you can access super, of course. So that'd be part of it. Um, that's one thing I think, look, you know, I, I, that aside, super up to your, up to your limit is always the most tax effective decision to make. 
um, literally always because there's no structure that's better than super. The, the, the downside, of course, as I said, is you can't then withdraw it. So, you know, the, the, again, financially, the, the mathematically, the smartest idea is top up super to your maximum contribution per year when you can. Um, again, I can't tell you what you should do, John, so it'd be really, really clear. I'm not saying John should do this. I'm saying for anyone listening, topping up super is the most tax effective option you've got, particularly if you can self-direct that super in an SMSF or a self-directed option within industry super or retail super. Um, they can be they can be great options that give you, you know, whatever you lose in slight flexibility, you'll more than make up for in tax savings, but that money is locked away. Other than that, uh, an ETF of some description or other, there's, there's Raise, there's po- a Comsex Pocket app. Um, I really like Pocket, mate. I, don't, I haven't used it and I'm, we're not affiliated with Comsec at all. I am a Comsec customer. Um, but it's just a, it's a really simple, easy, there's seven ETFs I think you can choose from. It costs you two bucks a trade for as little as $50 to go. Um, I reckon that's a really great option for people looking to start and slowly build stuff up. Um, all right, that's probably, that. For, anything else for that one, John? Uh, no, I have nothing there. All right. I got a response from Alex, an email from Alex via our, I'll give you our social email, via our email address. And look, Alex, you're not, you're not helping us out here, dude, because you start with, hi, Scott and Doc, you are wrong, exclamation mark. Now, Alex, I'm going to tell you, the best way to get your question answered is not to tell me, I'm, no, I'm kidding. We'll answer your question anyway, Alex. He says, well, to be fair, I think it's more a case of your answer being incomplete. And I do like the pod, by the way. Thank you, mate. But now I have your attention, he says. I'm referring to your response to a listener question on the podcast about LICs or listed investment companies. You seem to imply that LICs are dinosaurs moaning in their death throes and that anyone who would still invest through them has the brains of a dinosaur. I'm not sure we did infer exactly that, but uh, but I take his broad point. While I agree that over the long term, Alex says, the capital appreciation through an established classic LIC would be pretty similar to an index-based ETF, I think your response overlooks some of the advantages that LICs offer compared to an index ETF on the income side of the equation. Now, there's a lot of detail here, Doc, and I'm going to run through it very quickly because Alex put a lot of thought into this. And, um, you know, it's not a question, but a comment and answer. And so I'll share it with our listeners because it's the other side of the coin. He says, firstly, the company structure of an LIC means they can retain profits and smooth out dividend distributions over a number of years. This is particularly attractive to retirees. ETFs, by virtue of their trust structure, need to pay out distributions as they fall, which can lead to volatility in dividend payments. Absolutely true. So that's absolutely a good point. He mentions that he mentions some some LICs and compares it to um, a broad ETF and shows that the dividends are smoother through an LIC. And if you're someone who does need absolute smooth dividends, then that's absolutely true. Second, he says LICs also have the tax advantage of paying fully frank dividends, while of index ETFs follow the overall market trend of around seventy five percent. LICs can also pass on capital gains tax deductions in their funds from time to time, whereas ETFs can't. That's true. I do think, though, that the fully frankness of dividends is attractive. But as I've said before, I wouldn't put the franking level ahead of the after-tax return. Now, I'm not saying Alex is, but as we've said before, you don't, shouldn't be asking your accountant, how can I pay less tax, but rather, how do I maximize my after-tax return? The fact that um, LICs are fully you know, frank, that's, that's fine. Uh, and if the same dividend is offered and you get more frank in one rather than the other, that's definitely a, an advantage. But if you're simply you know, saying, well, I'll take this because it's fully frank no matter what the dividend is, that might be putting the cart before the horse. And again, I'm not saying that Alex is doing that, but if you're listening to this, listeners, just remember that the fully frankness is lovely, but only if the dividends are as large or larger and are sustainable. Last one, he says, um, I can see why LICs wouldn't be an enticing option for a growth investor like the good doctor, 
But to be fair, high growth isn't really their mandate. There are certainly some pretty crappy high fee LICs out there. And there are also some very good ETFs. It just felt like your reflections the other day were a little bit slanted towards relegating LICs to Jurassic Park. Foolishly yours, Alex. I think that's a, a very nice response, Alex, other than the fact you told me I was wrong. Uh, actually, I'm going to assume you were talking to Doc, actually. I'm going to assume you Doc he was wrong. I'm sure I wasn't wrong. Uh, mate, thank you for thank you for the time and effort and uh, and replying to that. Adding some extra colour, maybe a bit of balance even to our response on that. Doc, do you have any, any particular thoughts or, or response to Alex? I can't comment anything further beyond. <laughs> I love I love how it's been put. The, you know, they're not in the Jurassic Park and things like that's that. That's good, so isn't it? It's pretty good. good. All right. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Here's one from Ben. Hi, guys. I've only just started listening to you two, so I don't have all the praise yet, but I'm sure it will come. All right, Ben, as long as you promise, I'll keep reading your question. Uh, He says, I need help. There's so much conflicting advice on this subject, which is investing for your children. I've only just started investing in shares and have finally convinced my wife to invest the kids 15 grand worth of bank account funds into shares but I'm not sure the best way to go about it. How do I get the best return or minimize tax? The other problem is they are 13, 14, and 16. So for at least one of them, we're only talking five years, but I will encourage them to keep some in shares to grow for the future. Ultimately, I'd like them to have access, have, sorry, have accounts separate to mine so they can track them and get as excited about growth as I have. What's the best approach? Full on regards, Ben. Doc, your thoughts? Well, one of the issues with investing for kids uh, is that, you know, basically you, you get taxed uh, at a pretty high rate, right? Because, um, yeah, so I think there's some tax considerations to, to consider uh, yep. before opening up accounts for, uh, for kids. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, ideally, if, if one could invest for, for kids without having... Uh, I mean, I guess you pay the tax only when you realize gains. So if you're not, mm-hmm. and and if your dividends are minimal and you're just focusing on capital appreciation, then then that's probably okay. But you know, something yeah. to bear in mind. Um, I don't have anything else to add. Like, I mean, yeah, minimize tax. I've already answered. So if you have less transactions and less dividends, you're going to minimize tax. Um, mm-hmm. Best returns. I mean, here's. I mean, I would say instead of thinking about best returns, maybe one could think about good returns because sometimes mm-hmm. in the process of getting the best, you might not get good, and good yeah. over a good over a longish <laughs> period of time can yeah. be better than trying to hit it out of the park. So that's something again to consider. The ETFs uh, uh, would seem like a good way to you know a couple of you know, a few different ETFs might help. I like that, mate. I um. So, interesting. This is a challenge. This is a challenge. Uh, first thing is, I think. Uh, look, I think Doc's right. If you're going to invest for the kids, you can invest in their own names. Uh, if you do that, if you earn over, I think it's 416 bucks in income, you have to pay an exorbitant, um, extortionary amount of tax. I think it's 66 percent from memory. If a miner earns more than, I think it's 416 dollars in unearned income in a year, uh, and the reason the ATO did that, I've said this before, is to stop people. Basically, trying to screw the ATO by me pretending that my eight-year-old son earned hundred grand in income from my family business that I don't really have, but if I made one up, uh, I could pay him, you know, effectively thirty grand a year in in income to I don't know mow the lawn or something. And assuming the ATO decided that was a worthwhile <laughs> worthwhile effort, you may not, they may not. Um, then of course I could assume that he, you know, allocate that income. More importantly, I could get hundred grand worth of my cash invested in his name. He'd earn 
I don't know, 5, 10, 15, 20 grand worth of dividends and capital gains. And that in theory would be all tax-free. If I had 10 kids, I can invest a million dollars and basically have it be tax-free. Now, that's clearly not sustainable, nor is it 10 kids having sustainable for most people, so I couldn't do it. But um, the broad idea is the ATO is basically saying to stop people screwing with the system. If I if an unearned income, in other words, you know, if I, if I paid an the law, I guess I could probably claim it. But if I, if I put 100 grand in my son's name and pretended it was his, the ATO is going to call me and say, hey, dude, you, I know what you're doing here. He clearly hasn't got 100 grand in his name. You're doing it in his name because you want to. You want to try and avoid tax. Here's a 66% tax bill. So that's the reason they do it. Giving the kids a 13, 14, 16, I think from memory, they probably won't earn much more than 416 in a given year, particularly if you're not selling and particularly unless the dividend yield is super high or, or some, for some reason dividends grow massively. You could almost get away with keeping it simple and opening three separate accounts in their own names and just simply let them carry those through their lives. That's possible. You may get slugged, particularly for the youngest one, eventually maybe, I, mean, I can't imagine ETF ends up paying you more than an 8% yield even in eight years' time, but maybe it's possible. So just be mindful. Actually, it's only 18, so it's only five years' time. So just be careful of that. Um, after 18, by the way, you can earn unearned income without without penalty. So that, that stops at that point. Um, so there, there's one choice you've got doing their own names just being, being done with it. I think that's probably okay. Again, as Doc said, probably independent financial advice is important here. You can do it in your name uh, as trustee for each of the children, and that avoids that. Um, tax issue because they become the benefit nominated beneficiaries um, that can work as well uh, or you can simply live in your own name or, or your wife's name uh, partner's name and basically leave that as in, invested in one lump sum and then just dole it out to the kids when they get to a certain age but you potentially have capital gains tax implications at that point I think if it was me I'd be inclined after getting advice to put it in their names and roll the dice on the on the unearned income tax. I just don't think you're likely to have to pay it if you've got five grand for each of three kids, which I think is what you're saying. If it's 15 grand for each of them, that's different. But if 15 across the three kids, really unlikely you get to a point where your dividends exceed the, the threshold. Uh, and so if that's the case, you're not going to sell. If it's a broad ETF, as Doc says, you could probably just keep it simple and do it that way. Or uh, open an account in your name with in brackets as trustee four, and then each child one by one if you have three accounts or... I don't think you can do it for all three in one account, actually. Again, probably one for financial advice. Anything on my response, Doc? Um, no, I think that's great. Nice. Question from Nova. Hi, fellas. I've been in the equity industry for some time, but I love hearing your thoughts for a different point of view. And, she says, and in brackets, and for the record, I'm female. So this adds to your gender diversity listener mix. Fantastic. Thank you, Nova. Doc, this is a very specific question. I don't know if you know the answer to this one, but we'll go with it anyway. I have a question, she says, regarding UK shares. I lived in the UK for some time, good on you, and was there before Lehman's collapse when bonuses and champagne were still flowing. It must have been a hell of a time, can I say. I have a UK-based share trading account. However, I'm no longer able to add pounds to it as I'm now back in Australia. In addition, your UK counterparts seem to be promoting the underperforming FTSE index. So maybe this may be a good opportunity to look at some Financial Times Straits Exchange, in other words, their version of the ASX 200 shares. I open an offshore trading account linked to one of the major UK banks so I can further invest some surplus pounds. However, their platform is so bad. It looks like the work experience students set it up. I can imagine. I can guess who that might be, actually. My questions are, one, can you recommend a broker where I can hold funds in pounds and transfer direct with no ongoing account management fees? Two, what are your views, if any, on UK-listed stocks and the FTSE index? I note, she says, Doc men uh, Scott mentioned Diageo around Christmas time and I spent many Friday nights there enjoying the staff and friends highlight discounted bar. <laughs> nice. Thank you, fools. Nova. Yeah, Diageo, one of the, one of the better perks was um, discounted bar and discounted grog. But uh, that's, a, that's a year's gone past. All right. Um, Doc, 
I know you 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 have an, a, a platform that I think gives you access to the UK, but I also know it has an account management fee. Do you have any suggestions for Novus to a UK uh, shared trading account without um, ongoing management fee? Yeah, so I, maybe CMC markets might be worth a look. Like I mean, Saxo markets, uh, capital markets, which mm. what I use, uh, they would allow you to keep uh, currency. They would allow you to transfer currency and keep it in any uh, any currency that you choose as your base currency. You can do that, but mm. there's a, mm. there's an account management fee equivalent. Actually, this is a small, it's effectively a fee on the uh, the funds you hold, which is basically like yeah. an annual uh, management fee that you're paying. It's That's basically awesome, like, is it is it is it like just annoying that it's there or is it actually large enough to be kind of problematic? Well, it's well, it's like it's I think it's 0.12%, right? But I mean that's okay. that's not nothing, right? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, it's cheaper these days, yeah. Yeah, so I mean you and you know if you have a largish account then you're yeah. you're lining up paying a fair bit of fee which is you know acting negative to to your um, to your uh, yeah. So um, other than that, I can't. I, I mean, maybe mm. CMC market is the one to think about, but I can't uh, think of anything else. Yeah, I don't know of any either, mate. I've got to say, I don't do UK shares. Um, I imagine Nova's talking about Interactive Brokers, <laughs> which is the one that has a woefully unuser-friendly platform. Uh, they're not. They're not aimed for people like us. They're aimed for high volume, high volume traders and stuff. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily actually avoid. Uh, IB despite the platform unless you feel like you really can't use it over and depending on how many trades you're going to actually make in a given day week month year um, I have occasionally uh, you know our boss does the, the trades on the company's account here when we do our real money portfolios we back with our own cash but if he's not around I do those I, I'm, I'm kind of the backup and I've used it and it kind of sucks and if I don't use it I have to re- reteach myself how to use it but I gotta say if I was going to go for you know cheapish access semi irregularly for the UK, I think I'd probably be okay with it, quite honestly. Um, so that's an option. You, you can get brokerage through the major brokers, um, the Comsex of the world. They will charge an arm and leg for most of them, unfortunately. Um, a couple of things to think about. First is you can probably access some UK uh, ETFs and probably larger UK companies on the US exchanges. We talked about before, Doc, um, uh, the um, American depository receipts. We've talked about uh, the pink sheets are over-the-counter options um so Nova, you may find that using a uk a us sorry based broker you may be able to get to some of the companies you're looking for like a diageo i know they do trade on the us market um deo is the code from memory Let's see if i'm right about that one uh so yeah look i i, I, I we'll probably we'll probably duck this question to give you a, a complete answer only because we don't know and as i've said before we'd rather say we don't know than frankly make up an answer so um and and try and convince you that we know what we're talking about so i think be be a little bit uh, mindful um, have have a look around. I the other the other question I suppose I've got for you, mate, is you know, do you really want to do you really need to invest in the UK? Um, and it's kind of the conversation Doc and I have had before. If it's kind of more trouble and it's worth for you, that might be the answer. In the sense that, uh, again, if you can't access the companies, the large ones on the US exchanges, and if there aren't businesses worth investing in in Australia and 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 the US, um, you know, the, the the overlapping circles that mean you have to go outside that to the UK should be relatively small. I would never discourage anyone from going to the UK or any market where they felt they had a better idea than they could find somewhere else. If there's a, if you've got a great UK investment idea and you've got nothing in Australia or, or, or the US to invest in, then go for it. You absolutely should do it. Um, but if you're kind of thinking, well, it's a bit of a legacy thing, I'd probably ask you the, 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 the question you haven't asked, which is, do you need that account at all? Or do you shut the account down, bring the money home and invest maybe in Australia or in the US where access is easier? So that's a that's a that's a non-answer, and it's a, it's not it's a question answer to a question you didn't ask, um, but that might actually find you might find that's a better solution overall. Mate, question from Ross. Hi Scott and Doc. 
I recently commenced listening to your podcast and find it very interesting and informative. Thank you, mate. I can only assume that, um, well, do you reckon you about ours or do you he's confused with someone else, Doc? Oh, I think it's ours. Is it ours? Okay, good. Uh, he says, uh, I'm a member of Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, Rising Stars, Discovery 5G, and recently Maximum Upside. Thank you, Ross. Over the past year, my accounts in Australia and the US have both appreciated significantly. Thank you. You're welcome. The accounts are moderate in size and have accumulated approximately 50 stocks in our Australian account and about 25 in the US. As you note in the podcast, Motley Fool Advisors holdings, including yours and Doc's, are recorded on the Motley Fool site. I note the stocks held by each advisor appears to be relatively small in number. That's true. I imagine with all the opportunities crossing your desk from the different subscriptions, you'd be spoiled for choice. And the wide array of stocks would be accumulated even with having to allow for subscribers to buy stock recommendation first. Without wanting to be too personal, what strategy do you and Doc follow as professionals? And the second question, which is kind of leads on from that, am I accumulating too many stocks? Regards, Ross. What did you tell Ross, mate? Uh, Ross, look, like, you know, there was a point when I had a lot of different stocks, um in my list, uh, my list has come down, pruned down with large because I've I've just concentrated uh, my uh, my recommend my holdings across a small number. Mine is not that small. Like I probably hold about maybe 32, 35 old companies um, across the ASX and the US um, in total. I also have a lot more positions if you consider my options holdings. Um, which are mostly on the same company, so maybe that you shouldn't count them as separate things. But um, mm-hmm. so it's neither here nor there. For for a couple of things to consider, when so a lot of times what would happen is although a lot of ideas cross our uh, our desk or virtual desk or real desk, we may <laughs> be excluded from uh, from the opportunity of investing in them because of various trading restrictions and trading rules uh, that we have, which uh, are, are there such as, you know, if you write about something, you can't trade on it. If you talk about something, you can't trade on it. Oftentimes that just rules out a bunch of different things. Uh, so, so other than, you know, so, other, so there's some restriction there. And then, you know, it also is a function of how much volatility, you know, larger positions can mm-hmm. mean more volatility. So it depends on a personal appetite for volatility. I think most, many of our advisors, like at least the you know, ones I've, you know, uh, I would say most actually advisors and analysts, they're all mm-hmm. more, com- they're comfortable with volatility. They can handle volatility. So it's a little bit of that comfort zone thing as well like you know, more can actually give you a little bit more diversification and less volatility so it's it's neither here nor there i know of people in the motley fool uh in the motley fool global who have 80 stocks mm, mm. 70 yeah, yeah. stocks and they're doing just equally as well uh, there's just no one perfect answer the best way i think about this is if you think of the s p 500 as a as a is an index is an important index that has 500 different companies if you have 100 you have one-fifth of those many companies and <laughs> that in my mind is still not you know so people will say you have many many companies and therefore you're investing like an index and that's not true <laughs> you can have 100 companies and still be very different uh from the s p 500 as an example right so uh 
Yeah, this is. I think this is a debate. You know, then some some people also say that well, I can't follow all these companies. That's true, mm-hmm. but depends mm-hmm. on how you're following them. So do you do you follow them closely on your own, or do you rely on other sources to do the heavy lifting for you, uh, and you do the light sort of you know uh, yeah. overarching sort of philosophy around you know picking different types of companies, and that decides again to a large extent whether or not you want to have many or less. So. Those are sort of, sort of some broad strokes. Well, leave it to uh, Captain to answer. Mate, I can't disagree too much with that. I have a couple of thoughts. So for me personally, I, yeah, I do have relatively few stocks compared to the number that are available to us. You mentioned in a response to an answer, I think it might have been Friday's podcast or maybe early this one. They all blend together eventually. Um, you kind of mentioned the fact you've got a fully formed portfolio. And I think it's kind of a question of it depends where you start from and how you tend to add to the portfolio. And I think, you know, for me, I've, you know, I've, I'm saving regularly and adding regularly, but the money I'm saving and adding over time as the portfolio grows, both in terms of capital growth and individual um, contributions, each, each new position is less important or less relevant to the overall portfolio, right? You can imagine imagine starting investing at 20, you put away, I don't know, 1,000 bucks a quarter or something. By the time you're adding more money at 65, hopefully it's a seven-figure portfolio you're adding $1,000 to, and it's not as relevant in terms of the impact on the overall portfolio construction as it might be. And so it's tended to be the case that where I've built out a portfolio, I'm kind of adding, I guess, you know, incrementally to those existing positions in a kind of a, a, a not to balance, I'm not trying to keep the proportions the same, but it tends to be the case that if I own my best ideas, I'm adding to those ones specifically as I go. And that's probably the first way to look at it. Honestly, the the new services, some of the ones you mentioned, if I was starting from scratch, I'd absolutely buy those portfolios. So the, the 5G portfolio or the maximum upside portfolio, they're great because you kind of grab a whole lot and go, great, this is the portfolio, this is the sleeve, I'm setting myself up, I'm putting X percent of my portfolio, probably that I've got in cash, into a strategy and here it is and it's all in one box and it's ready to go. And I think that's probably how I would start if I was going to start from scratch, right? That's, that's you know, if I, if, I, if I like that particular strategy, I wanted to do that for my own portfolio, I'd jump on and do that. Um, the, the, I guess the challenge, we, we said our members regularly, and you would know this, obviously, as a, as a member of those services and a new member of Maximum Upside, um, you know, the, the, we say to people, please buy all the stocks. You know, we want you to buy them as a bundle. We want you to buy them as a basket. Don't cherry pick one, two, or three, and just buy those because we think there might be, you know, three, four, or five losers amongst 20 stocks. And we hate for you to pick the wrong half dozen or three or five or whatever and ended up, you know, just just kind of getting, you know, with my in my case, it'd be Murphy's Law, I'd pick the losers. Um, and so I'm kind of not, I'm not building my portfolio that way. So that's partly the reason for that one, I have to say. Um, it's also, I, I'll be honest, Doc, I wonder, even as I'm forced to think about my own answer to this question, um, I probably am falling falling prey to being guilty of, of you know buying the ones I know because I know them better. And it's a really tempting thing to do, right? I've owned some of the stocks I've owned for, dear, oh dear, more than 15 years, some of them, I think. Um, and you know what? I know those businesses so well that I'm, I'm tempted to kind of add more to those when the opportunity comes up. I've got some cash. I like it. It's cheap or I like the growth or whatever. Um, I will say the last stock I bought was Kogan and I, and I bought it because the shares had fallen from close enough to 30 down to 15-ish um, and the business continues to deliver. I'm like, well, I'll buy some more of that. Now, is that is that the best possible idea out there? Probably not, you know. Like if I'm really, really honest, if I'd started from scratch and said, hey, with all these ideas, which one do I like best and given the risk and the portfolio construction stuff I just mentioned before, which one of all of our recommendations would I buy? I... I I don't know, you know, like if I was completely impartial, I've known Kogan at all, would Kogan be the number one stock? I like to think so because I like to think I'm not making a mistake. But if I'm really, really honest, 
uh, you know, I work for some super, work with some super bright, super capable people who are all picking stocks. And the, you know, the, the chance that my idea is the best idea of, of the eight or so of us at any point in time, let alone for the ones I'm buying for my portfolio, the law of averages would say, you know what, I'm not picking the very best stock every time. I'm not the best investor in the team every single month or every single quarter or half or year. Um, hopefully, sometimes I am. Hopefully, sometimes others beat me because you know that means we're all we're all doing well. So that's kind of my. My answer, Doc, you know, part, part of the honest answer is I'm probably not maximizing in a purely rational way the stocks I should be investing in. We, we do prefer our own ideas. We do prefer our own, the companies we already hold. We like them a lot. We like them more the longer we spend with them. And hopefully that's for the right reasons, right? David Gardner's on Amazon since 97, Doc, I want to say. Um, and, you know, if, if he added to that every time it went well, that would have been a good thing. And does he know that business really well? Absolutely. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a it's a fantastic question, and as I said, I'm kind of forced to acknowledge that actually maybe I'm the one in the wrong. Um, so that's probably my answer to that one. In terms of you're saying, am I accumulating too many stocks? Doc's already answered that. As long as you feel like you can cover them uh, yourself or with help, I think the answer is no. And certainly at 75, that's not too many. As long as you feel like either you can keep a handle on them or someone's doing it for you, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Um, and as Doc's mentioned, there are other people in our, in our business who have a whole lot more uh, more than 80. I think I heard one of more than 100 at one point, Doc, of just little positions that people are adding to slowly. That's a great way to accumulate some ideas. I have no problem with that at all. It's not what I do, um, but I would be happy for people to do it. And like I said, I, I really do think if I was going to, as a as a non-professional investor, follow uh, Motley Fool Pro, that is a portfolio service, or 5G, which is a portfolio service, I desperately would want to think I would do what we tell our members to do, which is please buy the whole portfolio so you don't end up with... Um, a skewed sample of the stocks that we pick and particularly because we're, we're constructing it as a portfolio and taking a bit more risk on a company by company basis because we feel like the portfolio itself is the diversifying factor. And so if you said to me, which one stock should I buy? That answer might be different to, you know, that, that stock might not even be my top 20 portfolio list of companies that I think you should buy in total. If I, if I bought 20 5G stocks or 20 maximum upside stocks, um, you know, the 21st best idea is one I might have bought. Kogan's not, I don't think any of those portfolios, I'm not sure actually. So the 5G portfolio, for example, um, you know, but I'd happily buy the 5G portfolio and not Kogan if I was looking to put a portion of my my um, my portfolio into that strategy and, and follow it accordingly. And again, if I knew that someone like our team were going to keep an eye on it, I'd feel pretty good about that as well. Any more on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. Love the question though. It's a really cool one. And I, frankly, I... I don't mind the ones that kind of make me search my style a little bit because it probably is bringing up a shortcoming. You know what? I'll very quickly, Doc, actually, one more thing is only that I am really – the structure of our services, both the the one-off kind of 20 stocks in a portfolio ready to go, roll out the door services, and also the ones that do the one stock a month like EO that you run or Share Advisor, Extreme Opportunities, or Share Advisor that I run, SA. Um, what I love is the, 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 the mechanism that makes us make a recommendation every month. You know, I we we spent. I think I've told the story of a former colleague of ours. We spoke to, I want to say, five years ago, and it was kind of like, hey, can we just, you know, if we think the market's like not a bit overheated, there's no good ideas. Can we just not buy anything? And I'm like, well, no, that's not the promise we made to our members, and we should try and find something. If we desperately thought we could literally not find a single thing, I guess we could think about that. But then, when would we start buying again? And I got to say, mate, a lot of that conversation was 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, and frankly, during that time. The market kept going up and up and up and companies were absolutely worth buying. And I think there's something really good for our members, quite frankly, and, and probably good for my own uh, investing track record. I don't know if you share the sentiment, you're welcome not to, but I'm pretty sure, you know, just, just being, I'll say forced, but, you know, having a structure that says we make a recommendation every single month, we find the best idea we can every single month. I'm, I'm relatively sure 
even though my portfolio is smaller than the share advisor scorecard, I'm reasonably sure that the process of being forced to do that has actually helped rather than hindered our members because it's made us go through the motions and make sure we've highlighted those stocks, no matter how we felt about the market. We spoke to David Gardner before who was investing during the GFC saying, you know what, investing in 2008-9 was just, it was just awful because every time you feel like you put some money down, the market will fall further. And you invest in something else, the market will fall further. You buy something else, the market will fall further. And you kind of think, oh man, this time of the month again, I've got to go and buy another or recommend another stock. Um, and yet, some of those recommendations, of course, as you, you know, model of the story, um, no surprise. Some of those have been the best investments he ever made. They just felt really crappy at the time. And so I think, honestly, the, the, the process, the discipline of doing that, I think has actually been really, really useful for share advisor. I, I think, I, think I, I will echo those sentiments. Yeah, regularly picking something is actually a very interesting way to uh, go about doing things. Isn't it? It's really, yeah, it's, just, it's, been, it's been an amazing psychological experiment for me. Mate, um, that's it. We're done. But before we go, I want to thank all of the people who've sent us their questions. There are some in the tank we didn't get to, believe it or not, mate. So we're going to have to do this again next week. How about that for a change? Should we do a special Sunday mailbag episode next week? Sounds like a good idea. (laughs) Now, before we do go, if you do want to be featured on that or a future mailbag episode, you just want to simply follow us on social media. We'd love you to do that. Um, So the best way to do it, as I've said many times, is on Twitter because that's the exclusive place you will find the Good Doctor. Doc is only and exclusively on Twitter. I'm not sure you should, you should be doing some sort of endorsement deal, Doc. I am waiting if, for... If you're going uh, to limit yourself... I'm waiting for Jack Dorsey to pay me something for, you know, being... You've got to go to him and say, look, here's the thing, dude. I'm, I'm doing you a favor. I'm only on Twitter. Yeah. Every one of our millions of followers, the millions of podcast listeners, I think it's, I think it's, it's millions or billions these days, probably millions. Uh, uh, bill, um, billions, billions, billions. Billions, billions. Yeah. Uh, billions of podcast listeners. The only place they're going to speak to get the good oil from the good doctor is Twitter. Jack's really got to come to the Jack, maybe they could just sponsor the podcast. That'd be all right. We take that. Oh, we'll take anyway, that. <laughs> if you're on Twitter, and you should be, because it's great, despite all the grief that you hear about it. I, you know, mate, I get I get a crappy tweet aimed at me about once a week, but I get so much more good stuff. It is like I I, I tend to believe you kind of get the 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 followers and the kind of the audience, the the community you, you kind of deserve. I've tried to be a decent Twitter person as as you are. And generally, actually, we've done really well at it. Like it's, actually a, it's actually a pretty good platform. So if you're not on Twitter, I would encourage you to do so. And if you do, and when you do, type in at Anirban Mahati, and you can follow Doc, at TMF Scott P, you can follow me, or at The Motley Fool AU, and you can follow The Motley Fool's account. If you're on Instagram, which Doc's not yet, but I'm still working on him, at TMF Scott P again, and also at The Motley Fool AU again, same handles for Twitter and Instagram on Facebook. The Motley Fool Australia is our corporate account. Scott Phillips Money is my page. And of course, you can, as some of our listeners have done this week, email us, info at fool.com.au to make sure that we get your question, we get your feedback, your thoughts, your comments and suggestions. And before I go, mate, if you like some of what's been said today, the questions you've heard, the comments you've heard, you can join Doc's service, Extreme Opportunities, by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. EO for Extreme Opportunities. So good we abbreviate it fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Join Doc and Kevin at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. I'm pretty sure you'll be glad you did. It is remarkably great value. All right, mate, that's it. Uh, We do hope you do subscribe to the app. You know the story. Go to Apple, go to your favorite Android podcast app or download the Listener app on any of those platforms. Tell your friends, tell your wife, what do they say? Um, (laughs) Yeah, just do, do the right thing. No no tattoos. And of course, you can get a dose of foolish just straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next Friday with another dose of Foolish Insight. Until then, fool on. Fool on. 
The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.